at IPC and in the community. Last weekend, my husband and I had the opportunity to fly to Calgary to attend a family wedding. And I need to confess to you that I'm a bit of a country bumpkin. And uh, being from the greater Embro area, or the GEA, as the locals call it, I'm still fascinated by some things that sophisticated city folk probably aren't quite as fascinated by. But I'm fascinated that a big, huge thing of steel can be propelled into the air and fly from one part of our beautiful country to, to the next. It still fascinates me, and I love it when I get a window seat. And I can see, we flew out of London, and I can see London disappear, and the patchwork of greens and golden wheat and yellow canola, um, just the patchwork of our beautiful nation. And I can see lakes and trees and bigger lakes and more trees. And then our little southwestern Ontario fields, as we fly over the prairies, become bigger. And as we were flying, we flew over, I'm not sure if it was um, the Badlands in Montana or in Alberta, but just like the rugged topography. I just, I sit in a plane and go, wow, this is cool. I'm hurtling through the air. <laughs> Anybody else willing to admit that they're a country bumpkin and think that's fascinating? <laughs> it is so good not to be alone. You guys are great. And I'm also a bit of a geek. So I read the magazines in the seat in front of me. Does anybody else do that? <laughs> Most people, smart people, bring their own books, right? But I don't know. Just, you know, you can some neat food. But there was an article in the WestJet Flyer about how the world needs more Canada. It's a celebration of um, Canada's 125th, and Barack Obama said to Canadians that the world needs more Canada. And I thought, that's pretty cool, isn't it? And this magazine was um, arguing that that would be a great slogan for our 150th anniversary of being a nation. And uh, Aaron put together this awesome slideshow to inspire you about the beauty of Canada. And I think it's important for us to reflect as a church family about our nation and how awesome and beautiful our country is. So many of you will know that I was called to IPC to be the pastor of life groups. So I. I like interactive, smaller groups of people, you know, like Kids Camp Sunday. So we're going to pretend that we like talking to each other, okay? I know you don't, but maybe you could share with me some of the things you love about Canada. Anyone? Someone has to go first. Peace. Awesome. Praise God. We have a peaceful nation. Anything else? David? Endless opportunities, yeah, for sure. I think I'm going to talk about it later, but sponsoring a family from another nation has just kind of opened my eyes to endless opportunities that we have here, for sure. Anything else? Yes? Freedom and abundance, absolutely. Yeah, the freedom to, freedom to be in a hurling um, 
big chunk of steel going across the country, freedom to travel, freedom to gather and worship, and abundance, right? Like how many, some people ask me how many pairs of shoes I have. I'm afraid, I'm afraid to tell you about the abundance of my footwear, but I have a thing. But we do. <laughs> we do have an abundance, don't we? We absolutely. Anything else? Sorry, pardon? We are wealthy. Exactly. Welcoming. Okay. I was going to talk about shoes again. Thanks for saving me, Fred. <laughs> we are a welcoming nation. That was part of what Obama was talking about, part of, and it was the, that quote, we need more, the world needs more Canada, was repeated by Bono, an activist talking about um, Canada's willingness to welcome refugees, but also ca Canada's willingness to support international health care, right? We're willing to share our resources with others. Anne, you have lived coast to coast, awesome. You love all of Canada. It's pretty beautiful, isn't it? I, I think we had some people in the west, in the east coast this year. Who was in the east coast? Facebook showed some. You guys, awesome. I, did you go to the Cabot Trail? It's one of my favorite parts of um, the country. Has anybody been to the Cabot Trail? It is so beautiful. Yeah, and flying, and some of us have been to the western provinces. I know Stephen Robin climbed some mountains. It was awesome. We went to Canmore last Monday, but it was smoky. We couldn't even see the mountains. So we have a gorgeous country, but can't see much of it when it's covered with smoke. But certainly, we, there is so much that makes us proud to be Canadian, so much to be thankful for. And this year, as a uh, community, we've had the opportunity to welcome the Jala family. And I've had the um, opportunity to kind of be front row to see them explore and see Canada, and been surrounded by an amazing group of people. And as um, we've heard their stories about Liberia and Cote d'Ivoire, even the things they miss and love about their homeland, but also the endless opportunities for education and employment that can happen in Canada. It's, it's a pretty neat opportunity to, to see Canada again through new eyes. And this Tuesday marks a pretty significant date. This Tuesday marks a year since they've arrived. So it marks the official end to our sponsorship. But um, Victoria shared with uh, the IPC Refuge community and with Session, that IPC has become more than a sponsor, that IPC has become family. Good job, folks. <laughs> so I just want to thank you so much for your generosity, both in um, giving generously of your funds so that we could sponsor this family, but also your generosity of time and resources in welcoming this family. And we look forward to their bright future as they continue to be part of this community. And we're having a celebration on August 6th. We're celebrating their first year. We're celebrating our uh, year together as, as church family. 
and there's gonna be a bouncy castle, seems to be a theme, and we're having a barbecue, and we're, we're going to celebrate our relationship and successful sponsoring of this fantastic family. So I just thank you so much for your generosity. So when we sing our national anthem, one of the lines we sing is, God keep our land glorious and free. And we shared what we're thankful for as Canadians. But there is also another side, isn't there? Does anybody else feel like it's a little trickier to, to be a Christian in Canada? That um, there's, there's been so much change. I wasn't here for Canada's centennial, but um, I have siblings who are here. And um, we were talking and reflecting on, you know, just how much has changed in the past 50 years. You can look at some things that have happened more recently, like um, the law school at King's University College in Edmonton, how some provinces have said we don't want lawyers from there because the Christian worldview just doesn't fit in the legal world. Or we hear stories of, of doctors who are challenged because they believe that life is sacred from conception to, to the end of life and um, how that's challenging. So there's so many other things that can challenge us as Christians that can make it difficult to be a Christian in 2017. So I'm glad you would agree that it's harder to be a Christian, and, um, but, and we're, I want to explore with you today what, what we're called to as Christians in 2017. What practices should we incorporate into being believers when we're surrounded by a secular culture, a culture that doesn't really have the same values as us. What should our faith look like? And I've been reading a book, and we're going to see a slide of the cover of the book. It's called uh, Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and Extreme. And I know I'm not the life group pastor anymore, but this would be a great book for life small group ministries to study and to grapple with it would be a great book for uh, our young adults to read as they head off to university. It's a great book to read if you're moving into a new job that would place you in a bit of an uncomfortable situation. It gives lots of really good practical advice. It's really positive um, and, and a great practical book to, um, to read and to grapple with. And I'd really encourage you to read it. I've been reading a, another book lately, too, that has some great practical advice. It's an ancient book. It's been around for a while, and I think together it'd be really great to check out Jeremiah 29. But before we get to Jeremiah 29, we kind of need to know what's happening. In Jeremiah 29, there's a letter to the exiled people. But before that, in Jeremiah 28, we read that King Nebuchadnezzar has come to Jerusalem and he's plundered the city and he's taken 10,000 of the, um, the most gifted people, the, the leaders in Jerusalem. And he's taken them out of Jerusalem and he's taken them into exile. Now this was a really strategic move by Nebuchadnezzar because a great way to ruin culture, to decimate a society, is to drain the brains 
right? The leaders, those people who led in, in economics, the best teachers, the brightest students, the people who led in areas of art and literature, the people who, who led in terms of commerce and economics. He took all of those people out of Jerusalem and they, he wanted them to come into Babylon and to learn the culture and the history and the magic arts and the fortune telling and the literature of Babylon. And he had done this before to other countries and he knew that this was a great way to change what they believed into what Babylon believed. He wanted these people, these Jewish people from Jerusalem to leave aside their one true God, their only God, and to worship the many and diverse gods of Babylon. And, that, and there were various prophets in that community of 10,000 people who rose up and said, we're not going to be part of Babylon. We're going to live outside of the city. And we're not only going to refuse to be part of Babylon, we're going to pray against the city of Babylon. We're going to pray for the destruction of Babylon. We, we are going to stay separate and distinct and basically to hell with Babylon. And then we come to chapter 29 where it says this. Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled, to Babylon from Jerusalem. And he says this to them. Build houses, plan to stay, plant gardens, and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children, then find spouses for them so that they may have grandchildren. Multiply, don't dwindle away, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will be determined, will determine your welfare. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says, do not let your prophets and fortune tellers, do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who you are in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams. This letter must have been astounding to the people, those 10,000 people of Israel. Those people taken from their culture, their, um, their land where they were able to serve the one true God, where they were taken outside of Babylon, where they were told by their prophets, you know, curse the city of Babylon. We're not going to be part of them. We just, we want God to curse it so that we can go back to Jerusalem and be the dominant leaders. But God had a completely different plan. God had a completely different idea for them. God had a much bigger picture, a bigger picture of what he had planned, a bigger picture of what he wanted to do. God was telling them to be part of his plan, that it was his plan that carried them out of Jerusalem and brought them to Babylon. That it wasn't a wicked idea, it was part of his plan. And that said in verse four, that the God of Israel has taken them 
and then it's repeated again in verse 7. And we know in Hebrew literature, whenever something's repeated twice, it means it's really important. If it's repeated three times, it's even more important. But if you read through something and you miss it the first time, you're going to get it the second time. It's going to be reinforced for you. So we see verse 7 repeats, the city to which I have carried you into exile. There's no mistaking, there's no missing what God's plan was. It was God's plan for those gifted people to lose their cultural power. It was part of God's plan to renew and develop them. It was part of God's plan to renew and develop, redeem and restore the city of Babylon and the people living there. It was part of God's plan to get his word dispersed through the nations. God was telling them, you need to live as believers in an unbelieving nation. It's part of my plan. It's part of my design. Move in. Get in there. Get busy. I took you out of the safety of Jerusalem, and I want you to be disseminated into all the world. God refuses to let them believe that there's only two choices, that they can only either assimilate, become a part of the Babylonian culture, which was what the Babylonians wanted them to do. They wanted them to learn all about the, the amazing culture of Babylon so that they would lose their distinctiveness. And Christians throughout time and believers throughout time have kind of seen that um, there's only two choices. You can either assimilate, disperse, disappear, or you can separate and hold on to your uh, distinctive identity and have no contact with the world around you. But God encourages them that those are not the only two choices. God tells them not to lose their identity. They're to increase in number. They're to keep track of who they are, and they're to stay in covenant relationship with God to continue to be God's people and to continue to let God be their God. But on the other hand, they're, they're to move in. They're to get busy in the city. They're to get economically involved by planting gardens. They're to get physically involved by improving the beauty of the, of the city and by building houses. They're to get relationally involved and marry and have kids and grandkids. They're to get culturally involved and work for the well-being, the shalom, the peace of the city. Get deeply involved and engaged in the life of the city, but also to live distinctively as God's people. So they're to hold on to this monotheistic worldview, this belief that there is one true God. And God asks his people to become spiritually bicultural, to love both God and the city to live in the city of Babylon, but, but remain distinctively God's people. And how? What's God's plan for avoiding both um, assimilation, disappearing, or separation? God's plan for them is that they should pray. They should pray to God for the welfare of the city, that they should seek its peace and well-being, its shalom, the word, Hebrew word shalom is used as a greeting. It, it means peace, but it's bigger than peace. It's like overarching well-being, physical well-being, spiritual well-being, emotional well-being. 
perfect harmony, perfect peace, the best life you can imagine. And their motivation was for the city to prosper, for the city to prosper so they could prosper. They're told not just to grow temples in the city, but they're they're told to use their lives, their giftedness, to make the city a great place. It's part of God's plan that they be the city, that they make it safe and prosperous, that they spread peace and take care of people who need help. They're called to make the city of Babylon great. They're called to pray for the peace of the city. They're called to use all of their gifts, all of the things that they've learned in Jerusalem, all of the things that they've learned in Babylon to become great. The prophets tell them to pray against the city, but God tells them to pray for it, to love God and to love the city for God's sake. They have two roles and two tasks, to love God and to love the city. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Kind of sounds like Jesus' words in Matthew 22, where someone comes to him and says, so what, what are the two greatest things I can do as I follow you? Or what are, what are, Master, what are the two greatest things that we can do? And Jesus replies, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. Throughout history, the people of God have struggled between these two choices, to separate or to assimilate. And when we think of um, separation, we think of communities like Old Order Mennonites that dress distinctively, that live distinctively, that don't even want power or hydro from the outside community to come into their homes. They want to be separate. But sometimes we separate in different ways, don't we? Just having friends who are safe and Christian and don't really challenge what we think and what we believe. Or we have the temptation to just assimilate, just kind of disappear into uh, our workplaces or our neighborhoods and not really stand out as distinctive. I know I face both of those temptations, but God calls us to a third way. God calls us to keep truth and love together. So what, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us as Canadians? What does it mean to seek the shalom, to seek the peace and the overall well-being of our community. What does this mean for us in Little Innercup? What does it mean for us in Woodstock, in more of Oxford County? As I read the Bible and I've been, as I was challenged by uh, the, the book, Good Faith Christians, I was inspired by hope. Hope and the comparison, how closely the comparison to those, Jude- to those Jewish people in exile, um, how closely it's linked to our current cultural situation. And God is calling us to something. God is calling us to recognize that even though government seems to be changing, even though the morals of our society seem to be changing, we are still called to recognize God is sovereign, to recognize that God has a bigger plan, 
a better plan. That God is so much bigger than the situation, the circumstances that we find ourselves in, no matter how challenging or how great our current circumstances are. But God is bigger, and we can trust him. That God has a plan for his people. As Christians, we believe that God knows what he is doing and is not surprised or confounded by our situations in life. That we can maintain the belief that God knows where this is headed. That God can work all things to the good of his people. That God has a master plan. That he has his purposes. And that we don't have to worry about the direction of culture. That we can trust that God has us. And God loves our community even more than we do. We just need to be faithful. We just need to trust that God is God. And we just need to be faithful in our calling. I think first of all, we're called to love God, see God as sovereign, but we're also called to love our neighbors. We're called uh, to the power of actions, language, and respect. What we do and what we say matters. What we do and what and how we do and how we say those things also matter. Over the past weeks, I've been really proud of the IPC community. Um, I have, over the past five years, I've had the opportunity to walk with uh, two of my former colleagues at the Children's Aid Society, walk with them through cancer, and um, had the opportunity to uh, coordinate their funerals, to speak at their funerals, and um, my, uh, I have a friend of mine who died the week of kids camp. And uh, th two and a half years ago, when she was given a terminal diagnosis, she called me in and she said, Joyce, I don't really know about your God, but I know I want you to do my funeral. And when you're told by a 37-year-old that they want you to do your funeral, you kind of go, oh, like, this stinks, right? But it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to to love and to live alongside during a really difficult situation. So I explained to my friend Meredith that, you know, asking me to do means that, you know, it's a package. I come with, uh, with Christian prayers, with reading scripture. And she said, well, I want it to be really positive. I want it to be like a hopeful celebration of my life. And I said, well, scripture has some pretty positive um, things in it, some, um, some references to, to God's care and love for us, some references to uh, what comes after this life, some references to how much God loves and cares for you even in this really difficult situation. So uh, the week before kids camp, Meredith moved into Sakura House. She was no longer conscious. And there were many friends and family coming and going from Sakura House. And when I came to visit, the door was opened by an IBCer. How cool is that, right? How cool is it that we have a presence, a loving presence, a respectful presence, a presence of action in our community and places where it's really tough? I'm just so proud of you guys for being God's love. And um, Meredith died during the work of kids camp. I was thinking, man, this place does not look like a place for a funeral. <laughs> but Meredith has a nine-year-old boy and a seven-year-old boy, and they love Lego. What a perfect place for a funeral for, to remember a life, but also to show 
that church isn't weird. Church isn't dead or stale. It's dynamic. It's actually fun. So on the Friday of Kids Camp, Kids Camp was over, and my amazing colleagues started vacuuming the floors and moving things and preparing uh, this place to still look like a Kids Camp celebration, but also to house about 450 lapsed Catholics and incredible skeptics of the Christian faith. Well done, IPC. So people who were totally exhausted um, from kids' camp and giving kids their all stayed late and transformed this place into a, a place where we could host well. It was awesome. So because of... Um, those people's labors and because of support from all of you, we could host in this place about 450 people who think church is irrelevant and possibly, you know, extreme. And they were surrounded by messages of God made you and God is with you and God loves you and God made you for a purpose and that nothing can separate you from God's love not even your disbelief. How awesome was that? So we, we're called, we're called to, I can't look at my husband, we're called to, <laughs> we're called to love our neighbors. We're called to do actions of love and service even to people who don't believe what we believe. And we have these awesome opportunities, right, to speak into our culture, to speak into people's lives. And as I look out, I know that in your, um, in your occupations, in your vocations, you are God's love and God's light and God's salt to the people around you. That you speak to people who don't believe what you believe. You speak to them and you act in respect. You give them dignity. You treat them as image bearers of God, even though they won't acknowledge who they are and who God is. So I think that those are the things that Jeremiah 29 encourages it, us to do, but those are also the things that I see you do. Jesus' ministry repeatedly gave examples of countercultural acts of respectful service. He went and hung out with Zacchaeus, a tax collector, who had swindled so many people out of their money, who was so hated. He sat down at a well with a woman whose morals were so despicable. But he met, Jesus, he, Jesus met her where he, she was at. And we're called to those things, aren't we? We're called to be salt and light. And in, in the downtown ministry that we have, the, the drop-in that we have on Tuesday nights, over this past year, I've had such a great opportunity to have some life groups drop by and the, the morning women's ministry and men's impact and the baseball team, the young baseball team drop in and, and I've seen you um, interact with the people who our society often thinks are kind of disposable, you know? People who struggle with mental illness, who struggle with addiction, but I've seen you eat with them and converse with them and treat them with the dignity and respect that they deserve. We're called in this culture to be salt and light, to love those around us, to respect God, 
to show people, even when they don't believe, that they are made in God's image. So we can believe in that God's power is at work in his people, that God is sovereign and he has a great and wonderful plan, and his plan is to use us, to use us to bring his shalom, his goodness, his grace, his peace, his emotional and spiritual and physical well-being to our community. God's plan is for us, his people, to trust that he knows what he's doing, to believe in God's power. We're not responsible for the outcomes, but we are responsible to be faithful. When God's people trust the biblical witness and are faithful to Christian practice, God brings his power to life in them. Jeremiah 29 was a blueprint for Daniel's life. He was one of those leaders who was taken into exile. And he became a top civil servant in Babylon. As a matter of fact, he served under three kings. He learned to stay true to his God, but to also serve this city, to work for the shalom, the well-being of the city. And we too are called to use our careers as entrepreneurs, as small business owners, as public officials, as farmers, nurses, as laborers. We're called to use our influence as parents. We're called to use our influence as we practice hospitality. We're called in how we steward our sexual lives and how we engage in conversations. We're called to show our love and our beliefs and to be compelled to be agents of reconciliation through Christ wherever God has called us and in whatever stage of life we're at. For young, we're called to be that salt and light in our schools and in our universities and in our colleges and in our, in our dorm rooms. We're called to be that in our careers and in our homes as we parent and as we host neighborhood children. And in middle age, we're called to be God's love and God's light and God's ambassadors for reconciliation in every area of our lives. And as we're aging, as we're seniors, we're called to be that light and that love, those ambassadors of reconciliation to give hope and peace and promise and potential even in our later years. Jeremiah's how-to survival guide for the, for the exiles can also be our life instructions and are as applicable today as they were a thousand years ago. So people of IPC, plant gardens, build houses, enjoy our beautiful country, invest in the well-being of your community, work for your community's prosperity and peace, for our community's flourishing will be our flourishing. As a community of God, we're called to pray for our community, for God to keep our land glorious and free. And we can do this by loving others well, by remaining committed to the Bible as a blueprint for our lives, by making space for conversation with people, respectful conversation with people who disagree with us. We can live God's blueprint for our lives. We can live as ambassadors 
of reconciliation by standing out from the crowd, by asking the right questions, by offering a vision of human intimacy beyond sexuality. We can do it by respecting and honoring our singles in a church where it's often pretty tough to be single. We can love our gay friends and our relatives and trust that while we still trust in God's design for sex and sexuality, and we can continue to build strong communities of faith, and we can practice the sacred art of seeing people for who God created them to be. So IPC, led by love and grounded in biblical belief, let's be ready to live countercultural lives and trust that God can reuse us by his grace as broken people, but loved people in Jesus Christ to renew our community, to love the people around us, and to renew our nation. Amen.